I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Penn State was in the Atlantic. <laughs> Tired. Mark Whipple was a bad coach at UMass. Wired. Charlie Molnar was a bad coach at UMass. Inspired. <laughs> Kevin Morris was a bad coach at UMass. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. This is Curry Hicks Sage coming to you live from my apartment in New York City on Thursday evening, August 6th, 2020, height of the pandemic. Tonight's episode, which will drop, I hope, tomorrow, maybe Saturday, is a really good one. We were lucky enough to have Dan Wetzel as our guest. Uh, Dan is a very prominent national sports columnist who's done a ton of different things, has hundreds of, the, hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. Not that that should be a metric for one's legitimacy, but it's certainly a sign of his influence in the uh, sports writing world. He writes at Yahoo Sports and has done movies, books. Uh, he's, he's just a busy dude. He lives in the suburbs of Michigan. And he came on, and i got to be honest, he gave us like an hour and 45 minutes and I actually had to get going like my wife needed me for some shit my kid was really sick um not COVID COVID negative uh and we actually don't know what it is I think it might be Lyme disease we can't figure it out like early onset Lyme or something which would be good because anyway the antibiotics are working he's he's fine but it was going so long I had to kind of cut it um which is a testament to Dan pure class that he would give us that much time and some of you will not like some of the things he said, so I hope I did a decent enough job pushing back. But I, you know, I, I didn't want to. I don't like to be overly antagonistic on the show. However, speaking of antagonism on the show, a show by the way that is brought to you by the fine folks at Five College Movers, world class moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. If you are looking to move anywhere in New England or beyond, call Pat and the gang. They'll take good care of you. Tell them we sent you. So back to the antagonism point. This week, as many of you uh, stalwart listeners of the program know, UMass has been doing a fundraising campaign, uh, flagship forward. And the idea was initially I said, you know, when they announced they were going to do it a few weeks ago, I said something to the effect of let's raise $5,000 or something like that from UMass Twitter. I kind of wasn't thinking through the details, I'll be totally honest. When I said that of, you know, like, was I going to actually collect that money? And then it got down to it. And I think Alan Pandiani of the athletic department said something like, well, Sage, you can collect it. And I sort of did. And so now I have like <laughs> 27, 28, 2900 bucks, something like that sitting in my uh, Venmo. I'll tell you exactly how much it is when I find out. I, I, I had $503 in my Venmo. I'm going to give, I've committed at least 100 of that. So whatever the total is right now, I think it's like 3,200, 3,100, maybe minus 400 is how much has been raised. However, as we were raising money, uh, Ryan Bamford, the athletic director at UMass, who has yet to appear on this program, by the way, said something like, we got in an exchange and basically said, you know, if you raise five grand, I'll come on the show. Which, Given that we had Dan Wetzel on and that we've had John Calipari on and that we've had Steve Buckley on and that we've had Walt Bell and Matt McCall and, you know, various others on who 
I would argue have more prominence uh, by any metric uh, than Mr. Bamford, there's a certain uh, arrogance there uh, about the fact that, you know, we need to raise five grand to get him on. I mean, like, dude, you're not Dr. J, but be that as it may, we've now well, so what happened was lots of people were like, well, I gave $1,000, I gave $1,500, I gave $500, and they're either saying that in my DMs or they're saying it to Bamford on Twitter, and they're explaining that they are UMass Twitter. And Bamford has been counting most of those, uh, you know, at least the folks who reach out to him. So if you count those, and I got to add them all up, last night I had counted like 2,100, then today I heard of a, of a 500 and a 1,500, so that would be 4,100, this is all plus the 2800 like we're pushing conceivably and then there are people who are like oh well I'm, i am umass twitter and that's part of the reason i gave but i donated independently a hundred dollars here a hundred dollars there you know we're getting another like five grand from that i would say something in that range um so we are at close to like eight grand i want to say and so given that and given the audacity of mr bamford to sort of uh you know put that out there when he comes on, and I like Ryan, everyone knows that, uh, we go back and forth and it can be uh, spirited, I would say. You know, I think we both on some level enjoy that, but also like there are parts of each other that irritate the other a little bit too. Namely for me, the fact that he um, hasn't come on this program, but I'm gonna grill him. like. I, I, it's not that I'm going to be antagonistic, but there's a lot of things that, you know, need to be asked. And I, I, if he's listening to this, I want him to know that I will be respectful, but there are a lot of things like if, if you're, if you put, you know, if you were to come on and do us a solid, great. But if you're making us raise five grand, like we're getting our money's worth. So if you have any questions that you need answered and they're substantive and, you know, in service of making the program better, send them my way. I'm not going to be afraid to ask them. I'm not going to be gratuitous. I'm not going to take shots, but I'm going to really get into the nitty gritty of the future of this athletic department, how he plans to guide it through historically challenging times. And frankly, some of the Wetzel stuff I suspect will inform aspects of the episode. So that will come soon. Um, hopefully, you know, before the school year starts, uh, I would encourage you guys to get on him and make sure he locks in a time um, and, you know, do so respectfully, but uh, assertively as well. So without further ado, this is the Dan Wetzel episode. Enjoy. My guest today, and we are so flattered that he would do this, is Dan Wetzel, former Daily Collegian editor, Norwell Mass native, 1994 UMass graduate, and current Yahoo Sports columnist, filmmaker. You wear a lot of hats, Dan, and actually that that's one of the... Uh, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, before, you know, ultimately, and I don't know precisely where we'll go with this, but um, thanks for doing the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, give us a little backstory of sort of how you ended up at UMass as a uh, 20, 30 years ago, I guess. I'm just impressed that your parents, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Sage, 
named you Curry Hicks Sage. I think that's just a inspired naming by them. That's how de- that's how devoted we were to that old band box of an arena. You know, I mean, it's a great place. It's a great place. I saw games in there. Uh, yeah, great great building. Um, but yeah, anytime someone named Curry Hicks Sage calls, you just you get you, you take the you take that call every time. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate. I forget the question. So the question was basically, you're, you grew up in Norwell, Mass. I got to tell you, by the way, uh, Norwell, Mass, the one thing I think I know about it, and this is a, a strange thing. Nobody knows anything about it, so this is good. Well, so, and and by the way, my dad prior to this told me it actually might be Norton, which is where Wheaton College is, but we're going to pretend it's Norwell because he, he couldn't recall. My grandfather, who died in, I don't know, eight years ago, he... The only army friend that he stayed in touch with from World War II was a guy named uh, was a hard drinking guy named Walter Dempsey from Norwell, Mass, who drove who I'm told drove a fire truck like an old fire truck around town. And so is this is this is this like a mythology that just lingered in my family or is this a real guy that because I feel like in a small town, if a guy drove around in a red fire truck, you would know him. I, um, I do not know that person, uh, but that doesn't mean he didn't exist. Uh, although, yeah, I would think uh, I would think that that would probably would have seen someone driving around in an old fire truck. So no, I don't think that is the actual. It might be North. All right. Well, the UMass. The beauty of UMass was that you met uh, when I went there. You met someone from every single small town in Massachusetts. And, you know, it's like a gazillion towns in Massachusetts. Everyone just says, yeah, Boston. Like, because it, it's too, like, you know, like, what? Like, you know, where, what, where is that? And, and it just goes, eh. And you end up meeting everyone from, so. Uh, I don't believe that was in Orwell, but. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, well, it's. Maybe. It, it would have been cool if it was. I, I mean, a guy who owns a fire truck. That's, that's the story. Like, he just, you know, and, and he didn't, he stayed in touch with that guy and a Mennonite from Pennsylvania named Virgil Yoder. And these are the only two, like, World War II buddies that made it into the family lore. So, uh, you know, I had, uh, I had hoped that maybe this guy really existed. Maybe I did a little Googling, couldn't, couldn't find it. Um, maybe it just was passed down through family lore and it was all bullshit. Who knows? Um, yeah. Yeah, you never know. That's probably true. I mean, that's a weird story to make up. Yeah. There's plenty of hard drinking on the South Shore of Boston, but that's... Yeah, so, th- so I was going to say, so you, you mentioned all the towns. I, th- I think I once heard Massachusetts has 351 states and or cities and municipalities. And when you, when you got to UMass, so I'm, I'm wondering... How did you pick UMass? Because this was 1990 when you first arrived on campus. You're in Plymouth County, South Shore, small town, um, and you you know it wasn't like hoops was ro- you know rolling yet, which big time bolstered you know admissions in the, in the years to come. Uh, did you just always know you wanted to go to UMass? Was it a family place or? Uh, my sister did go to UMass. My older sister went there. So I guess somewhat, um, I don't know, I was a kid in Massachusetts. I went to Boston College High School uh, in, in Dorchester for high school. I remember I was, I was gonna apply to Boston College and uh, they had this thing with the application. It cost like a hundred bucks to apply. That's, ste- that's steep in, in 1990. 
and I didn't have a hundred bucks. And uh, I thought, um, this is probably a sign that uh, I shouldn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my dad saying, well, you can go wherever, but you're gonna have to take out loans and different stuff. And then UMass was only 10 bucks. So I had 10 bucks. And so I applied to UMass and I kind of set the tone that I could figure out a way to, you know, back then it was more affordable than it is now. And, and uh, you could work a lot and pretty much cover a lot of the school uh, just by summer jobs and, and things like that. And so uh, that was kind of the, the uh, biggest thing was, uh, was, was affordability, uh, uh, accessibility of the school. I had friends who were going and uh, could play. Uh, I, I didn't know I wanted to live way out in the country. Uh, that was probably about the only thing. I was kind of more rooted to Boston at the time, but uh, I obviously enjoyed it. So, uh, you know, beautiful area and all that. So that was, that was pretty much it. It wasn't very dramatic. Uh, if I had done one of those, like, college football signing days with the hats and stuff, it would have been very dramatic. <laughs> well, as, as someone who still has loans from a private institution and – you know, and now hosts a weekly podcast about UMass athletics. You know, I could have I could have saved a lot of money if I just uh, heated the the uh, Wetzel School of, of College Admissions. I, I you know what what is what what does an eighteen year old know? Um, so you, I applied to Hartford too. My, my guidance counselor said you had to have a safety school, so I applied to Hartford. So you could have you could have been there during the Vin Baker era. Yeah, and really the only reason was the Hartford Whalers still existed. I'm a big Boston Bruins fan, so I thought uh, I'd be able to watch the Bruins sometimes. That was all my uh, my college admissions. <laughs> <laughs> I get I get I get two Bruins games a year in uh, in beautiful uh, Hartford Civic Center. Uh, I guess I'll go there and spend thirty grand a year on a mediocre <laughs> private school. At, <laughs> I also looked at SUNY Buffalo because of the Sabers, and uh, yeah, it was really like. The Adams Division was. Are you? There's a little. There's a little. Not the way you're supposed to do this. Not the way you're supposed to. Do there's this. a little. Is there a dog there? By the way, is a little. I'm hearing a little back chatter. There's no dog here. Uh, I can go back inside. Oh, sorry, you're outside. <laughs> My bad. Yeah. Uh, but I don't hear any dogs. But I'll, I'll move back inside. So you get to UMAC. Can you hear me? Yeah. So you get to UMass during uh, what was just about to be the start of what became the golden era of, of UMass basketball. And your, your first year on campus was the, if I'm not mistaken, was the NIT birth where, um, and I don't know how, follow, how closely you followed it, you'll let us know, but where, where Tony Barbie hit the famous shot at Siena, were you into UMass hoops like from the jump? Did you realize there was something interesting going on here with a young coach? Or was it kind of, you just were there to do your own thing and, and didn't even pay attention to it until it got really big? No, we were, we were into it. Um, I, I, like, I, I used to say when I went to UMass, I, I only possibly knew they even had a basketball team. Uh, I had once seen them play Providence. We had a family friend who played at Providence. He's a basketball, he's a good basketball player. Ernie and, D. Uh, Ernie D is the family friend. Uh, Sean Canty, Sean Canty. Uh, give, him a, give him a career shout out. Uh, played at Providence at some point. I, as a little kid, I went to the game. I remember I was like, oh, you mad, right? 
they even had a team. We got out there and uh, uh, we had some guys, you know, guys up in, I lived in Central, but it was a Central uh, burrito. And some of the guys, someone was like, hey, our basketball team is pretty good. And we were like, uh, really? You know, like we had no idea. And uh, so my roommate, Matt Schreider and I, we were like, all right, let's, let's go to a game. Oh, they're organized enough to go to the game. And, you know, it's free, whatever. And uh, at the cage, so we went, and it was, you know, it's like, it was like way more like, like the crowd was so into it, and like they had this exciting team, and uh, Calipari's going crazy, and got, uh, we had Will Herndon could dunk it. Will Herndon was, uh, could, could jump over a car. That was his big hype. That's still the legend in Western Mass. Anytime you hear Will Herndon, it's followed by who could yeah. jump over a car. Jump over a car. Great, great marketing. Great marketing. They hyped that up. He supposedly did it. I think uh, there's a story in the paper about how he, he they brought it out on a court, uh, some playground in Pittsburgh. And he jumped over a car. Who knows if it's true or not? Got us to show up. And uh, yeah, I mean the team was so was was awesome. And so you know you've got a whole lot going on, and uh, we got into it. So we watched uh, you know all the home games. It could hard to get the, the the road games maybe on the radio or something. I don't know, but. Uh, we were into it, so it was kind of fun that first year, and uh, it was definitely the whole campus got kind of started getting into it, and then it built up. But it, it was amazing. From uh, I just remember them being like, "Hey, this is, we have a good team." There was an older, older kid in my dorm who was from Amherst, and he was like, "Yeah, we got all." He, he knew everything, and we were very skeptical until we watched Will Hart and Dunk. <laughs> Well, because that first year, I mean, they were an NIT team and they had been awful the prior, basically almost 20 years. I mean, really for a decade, really bad. So it, it you know, it obviously was going to take a little time to get on board. But then by this, your second year, which I think is 92, winter of 92, they were, you know, making a run to the Sweet 16. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they had... Yeah, you could tell how good they were. They probably should have made the tournament the year before. I mean, they had Jim McCoy was good. Harvey was young. They had guys. And Harper had, Williams. Harper Williams still there. Harper Williams, sure. The big arms. And he hit the he hit the three against Syracuse in the tournament. Jim McCoy had this ability to jump in the air and keep his balance and hit this little mid-range jumper. And... Uh, I mean, they just had this perfect little team. It was great. And so... Then, but then it was like they started to like, all right, now we're playing teams anyone heard of. And so it was like, because there was like Temple and like West Virginia, Penn State. Like, yeah, all right. But then they played Kentucky and, and they're, they're starting to play some good teams. And then and then it was and it was rocking. But yeah, they made the, made the Sweet 16. And I wasn't like that surprised that they did really well. They had a good, they were, that was obviously a great team. We're, they're the best team. Were you, Everyone remembers the Canby years, but those years before, I mean, those teams were solid, and uh, wasn't just Marcus Canby. No, I mean, one of my so I'm 34. I'll be 35 next month, and my first season that I like really remember was Canby's freshman year. Um, be 93-94 I was like 8 and then but I, I but it's funny because you can't you come to fandom at a moment where you you hear a lot about the guys who were just before the fandom you you know you hit so growing up like I heard as much about Herndon even though I ne- I don't think I ever saw him play like I probably you know so I, I really wish I got to see those teams up close because the cage for me 
was mostly they moved to the Mullen Center in 93 winter in 93 and so the cage for me was like I would go watch women's games there and that's like where I would meet the players when I was seven eight nine years old but I never really got to like do the rage in the cage thing and I always will will regret it um did you cover the team at a certain point for the collegian yeah so even my sophomore year I was doing like some like spot I was helping out and then my senior year senior year I was around them all the time so were you were you a beat writer or were you were you like a columnist I was uh I was a somewhat part of a beat writer as a sophomore although not the main guys great Samir Lipton was our uh they used to call him uh, Faye Calipari and John Roby used to call him Scoop Lipton <laughs> um you gotta understand, like, it was so crazy back then. You just walk in and watch practice. Just just walk in, and there was nobody. I mean, there'd be nobody there. So, they'd be practicing, and then the collegian, you could just show up and stand there, and you'd sit there in the second row, and then, like, Calipari come over and talk to you. Uh, all the coaches would, and they'd just be like, what, you know, what do you got going on? And, and uh, I never forget, I watched, uh, I remember, I can't remember who it was, might have been McCoy. McCoy like turned his ankle in um in a, in a practice, and I'm just sitting there, and he sprains his ankle or twists his ankle, and he's gonna miss the game or something the next time. They get they, they take him off, and they're, they're working on him. Like find a find a bookie, find a bookie. <laughs> yeah, nobody knows. And uh, so then I'm like, and I literally like I'm like, hey, you know, Jim, are you gonna like are you gonna play? Like, what do you think? He's like, ah, oh, no, this hurts and stuff like that. So I. That was like the interview, and then I was like the paper had the story the next day, and they didn't have it in the uh, the Gazette or the uh, Springfield Union. It's like a big scoop, so my big first big scoop, like, and it was like everyone, and then the people were like, wow, that's great, and I'm like, wow, well, just literally sitting. I mean, that's that's the but that's the uh, interview players during the practice normally. That's how small time this thing. Works. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the truth is, like, that's a lesson I think in journalism in general is that show the, it show up. You know what I mean? Like, and and what's funny with this show, which is not in any serious way journalistic by any means, I don't profess it to be, but just just being you know interested in something the number of people that have come out of the woodworks and just like voluntarily told me shit now that i you know that has allowed me to like contextualize a lot of the things i was seeing as a kid has been enormously helpful for understanding that era so um yeah i mean the, the cal cal was incredibly open with press at that time because he he needed he knew he knew he didn't have any of it and he needed whatever he could get you know and the other thing is he was like 30 and, and now when you're 19 30 seems really old um his assist like Bruiser Flint and, J- and Billy Baino and in their John 20s 25 27 yeah. so again you think like when you're 20 19 20 25 year olds kind of old but not that old and then for them they're just looking at you practically like a peer and they were like always looking like what's going on on campus have you ever seen the guys that like they're just trying to they're just like they're they're trying to find stuff out too, and so like I'm still um, like anytime I see any of those guys out, like it's like a friendship of yeah we didn't go to college together, but they just weren't that much older. Like we would end up later my senior year and stuff. I'd go to their house sometimes, or we'd meet up at their bar or whatever. Like they'd be at the bar and have a beer with them and stuff like that. Because they would hang out in the bars in Amherst too, because there's only so many bars and they weren't that old, so. It was very, uh, it was so informal. 
it's so small time and Calipari was just he just didn't care uh, and he would just run him through these crazy practices and just didn't care who was sitting there you wanted to show up you show up so it was a very interesting way to get to know a team and get to know how to be a reporter it was an amazing opportunity I don't think that was their, the goal of the high access UMass basketball program but it served me extremely well when I started as a professional of just yeah, and I and I, I also got to watch like a, I, got, I watched probably 80, 90 practices through the years. You learn a lot about how they practice college basketball watching. Like people say, like, you know, Cal Parry is the recruiter. It's like he's not. Like he runs really good practices. No, when I was when I was down in I was down in Kentucky in October, um, and Cal, I reached out to the SID because Cal had been on the show, and he just let me in to watch practice. Me and my dad, which super classy, and it put to you know put to death real quickly that that myth that oh you know Cal's not an X's and O's guy, and I even thought like John Robick was sort of known as his you know tactical guru who would run practices or whatever. Cal was like running the whole thing and there there was a lot more technical stuff that I was trying to diagnose and couldn't, you know, in 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 short time. So like he definitely is is very hands-on even still and I think that's you know, is he like Brad Stevens with these like after, you know, out of bounds plays that are probably not, but like he know the guy knows what he's doing, you know what I mean? And it's it's disingenuous to suggest otherwise. Great practice coach. Yeah, and there's a difference between a practice coach and a game coach. Uh you know, and if you combine them, you're really the good fun. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was crazy experience. Uh, you just were around them a lot. And then, I don't know, like, I think I did a, I was doing a kind of a dual, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of it. We played, UMass played like Cincinnati once. We went to Cincinnati and I was like there for the student paper and like WMUA. And like you get off the plane and everyone's on the same plane. And then they just were like, hey, you want to come to lunch with the rest of us? Get in the bus. You know, like they just sort of, it was very like, uh, just was like part, you, you weren't part of the team, I'm not saying that, but you were, they were very helpful and welcoming. Like they just, I don't know, like I think, it, I look back on it now and it's kind of what you do, right? If you're like 32 years old and you see a 20 year old getting off an airport somewhere, you're like, you need a ride, right? Just, they just were helpful. And, uh, and, and very welcoming. So it was, it was, and, and you could still write whatever you wanted. I mean, there weren't a whole lot, you're not really doing a lot of rip shots with Collegian on a team that was winning every game, but um, <laughs> it was, it was just a, a very unique experience. You weren't going to get, as a sports journalist, you were not going to get that kind of situation if you had gone somewhere else. Like, they don't give, you don't have that kind of access with a student paper or anybody else at, at, Duke or at you know Syracuse or something like that. It, just, it was a very very unique situation because it was so it was almost disorganized. The big time showed up at this place that had no idea what it was doing, and so there were just no like guardrails. Right there, there's no. That's what I always say. Like there was, and I think that's part of the reason I fell in love with it so much as a kid. I mean. Because even Western Mass as a place, like the the ethos and like the vibe of the of the region, is uh, contemptuous of like too much infrastructure. You know, if it's if it's it's just a more laid back place. So when you bring that, uh, and it's a little counterculture in some ways. So when you when that comes all of a sudden to a place where there's no built in infrastructure to um, 
like to host it, 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 it leads to all these interesting, weird dynamics. And 30 years later, 25 years later, any person from that era who I grew up with has five stories just like what you just said. I mean, not quite, a, you know, like your access was obviously unique, but they were so accessible and it was almost like they were along for the ride and knew in real time that it was so unique. Like if you're at a school that's good every year, my in-laws live in, in the in the Raleigh-Durham area now, and it's like, it's just, it's the, the years just are indistinguishable. It's like, oh, they won it in 09, they won it in 05. You know, you maybe remember national title years, but that whole era at UMass was like, you knew what was happening was special. And so as a result, like, I think the, the, the memories have been more long lasting in some regards. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of kids that, like, they're, you could, you know, the Kirby has got that track that runs kind of behind the bleachers and around, and people would be run, jogging during practice, like kids just getting, getting some miles in. Um, people would stop by and just watch for a little bit and leave. I mean, uh, again, like, just it was just wide open. And I, I'm sure it was like, why would we lock the gym? Like, any, nobody's wanted to watch our practice in 20 years since Dr. J was here, so... Walk in, walk in, and not that many people took them up on it because as much as popular as they got, it was still like uh, I don't know. It was just a very, very unique situation that certainly I never could have thought uh, was coming, or, or I, I probably didn't even realize how unique it was until until later. But the whole athletic department is that way. It's very, very small athletic department. Every team I covered at UMass was just the coaches were great, and you know, just like. They just were happy. I don't know, happy or interested in them at all. Do you have um, do, have you maintained relationships with uh, either the people you covered, you know, in any significant way, or or people that you know you you were you interacted with athletically at UMass along the way? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, all, a lot of the people from the basketball program and um, our old media relations director who I worked for for a year, Bill Strickland, uh, Bob Markham, the old AD. Uh, NASCAR Bob. NASCAR Bob, Thorpe Bjorn, who's now at URI. Yep. Different guys around the, uh, just uh, different guys and women around the, uh, just around the country who went there. And then, you know, it's, there's a ton that went through, a bunch of guys in the NFL that went through uh, sports management department and all that. So, you know, UMass is a is a big school, but a small. I don't know. I, just, I, I never thought of that Western Mass kind of ethos, but probably right. It's sort of like we, we're not, we're not into rules here, so we're not into silos. Yeah, and I mean, even now, like the the, the access that we're given on this little show is is I think I want to say fairly unprecedented given you know college sports more broadly when you so you leave umass in 94 um where's your first stop professionally well i, I covered uh news i was like a uh like a police reporter in uh indianapolis at the and star at the star it was called the I, had, I was at the news there was two papers then uh the indianapolis news it was called the great hoosier daily <laughs> uh, went under not so great anymore but it was good at the time I guess actually it was not a good paper plus they had like nobody working there so they let the young people do like anything like I covered murder trials and all sorts like just 
general mayhem in Indianapolis. Then I went and worked at the, uh, I was on part of like a program at the Chicago Tribune, covered crime there. Uh, just, I don't know. So you did, you did cops and courts for a while. Cops and courts, yeah. And then, um, then I took a job at, uh, Basketball Times Magazine. I wanted to kind of get into a different type of writing and it was like a magazine job. And that was, that, that covered college basketball and basketball. There's also Eastern Basketball Magazine there. There's a bunch of magazines. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm like, like Street and Smiths, Athlons. <laughs> out of those kind of things, yeah. And so I got out of crime reporting. I had gotten like so jaded doing crime reporting. Every day I cover someone, someone dying, like literally every single day. It's like every day you cover the worst day of someone's life. It's not, yeah, that's not compelling so after a while. Go down to the paper, I go in early, and, and especially in Chicago, I mean, it'd be, you know, two murders overnight, a guy got a car wreck, uh, someone got hit by a piano falling out of a apartment complex. I mean, it just, <laughs> we had a plane crash, we had everything. It was just like day after day after day, and I was like, all right, I'm gonna try something different, because um, this was <laughs> experience, I guess, but. Talk about a miserable, uh, I didn't really quite realize it. I was having fun, I was in Chicago on the but it was like, just miserable subject matter. Uh, every day, crying moms. And then, and then uh, you know, you get like, you know, five paragraphs in the paper, with the, you know, really didn't really usually be able to do much justice to the stories. So, I got back into sports, and then got back into covering college basketball, so and it, it certainly helped. Uh, I mean, at that point, I think Bill Dano, who's had been an assistant, was at UNLV. Yeah, became head coach at UNLV, and that was in the NBA for years. Uh, was that, or is that UMass? They were UMass still doing well. I don't know. It was, um, yeah, just banging, banging along with that. So you're at this small map basketball magazine for for how long? Uh, probably about four years. Wow, okay. And they really let you... The was everybody in basketball read the magazine. So it was like almost an industry trade kind of thing. It was an industry trade, but it was written for fans. But like everywhere you went, you could go and they would like just be excited you were there. Yeah. Every single person. And so no matter where you went, they wanted to talk to you. Yeah. And that was a huge, uh, huge advantage. So even though the circulation was small... It was just like, you know, pretty pretty much anywhere you went, you were gonna get, you know, interviews, this, that. And then uh, and I was able to travel all over the country. It was great, it was a fun job. So that leads to your next stop, which was? Um, basically it was uh, CBS Sports Line, cbssports.com, it's now CBS Sports, and I was a top national college basketball writer for so that's a great gig, uh, and that's like that's er- early internet. There's there's some money there. It's like you get to write about what you want. You can write more free form. I mean, you you kind of are in that first era of internet writers, right? Like, I mean, I, I think of you. Yeah, you were, and you, and it, it enabled people to to muse as well as to report, you know, and to meld styles a bit, and and just gave. I mean, it, it obviously changed, you know, right? You know, you were, you were there at a very interesting moment. Did you, again, were you, it's just like the UMass thing, at the time you're living it, are you aware, like, wow, this this new medium we're doing here 
this is this is like really something's happening here because that was still early enough. I assume that's like the early aughts, right? Where there's still a pretty robust print journalism scene, and there's like I think our younger listeners don't always realize that the media ecosystem as it exists now was very, very different not that long ago. And it's hard to explain like the, the resistance that traditional media had when they were, uh, in, when, the, when people like you were coming up on the web. Did you encounter that? Yeah, I knew right away. I was like, this thing's gonna be huge. Uh, and uh, I, I, I did some freelancing for uh, AOL Sports. <laughs> and back at the time when AOL was the only way to get on the internet, practically. Oh yeah. When you, when you logged into AOL, this one page would pop up, and it would have like four news stories. And it had like the little icon of like just like three balls from different sports. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, it would have a ball, but then sometimes you could get on that front thing. So I, I was writing like weekly, and I just remember the guy would say. If you got on that page, and like I was just doing some freelancing, it wasn't a lot of money, but he's like, yeah, like, like six million people read that story. Yeah. Like, and, and there was something you know, like nine million people. Read, it was the numbers were astronomical. Literally, everyone in the country is going to the same page. Yeah. So I was like, all right, this thing is unbelievably huge, and I remember having this debate it was like well do you want to go work like I wanted that CBS job uh, the sports line job that I was like I want that job I would take that job over any newspaper country and some of my friends were like you know it's crazy you know you'd rather be at the Boston Globe like that was thinking get everywhere and then you could do anything like you could try anything like I, I remember I used to do this Monday this call for Monday where I basically did a, a paragraph about every single game over the weekend, every college basketball game. So it'd be like, <laughs> like twelve thousand words, and you'd be talking about like Akron and Prairie View. Yeah, absolutely. But then people loved it because they were the Akron fan, right? There are fans out there. Yeah, that's the whole premise of this show. <laughs> we're talking on the so you could do anything. Then the coaches would read it and get clipped, and it was like, oh, look at this national attention for the Akron win over Toledo on, you know. And, and uh, I, I, you could do anything, like these trap. you just could write and write and write and write and write. And as someone in their 20s, it was like, you know, you just want to get better at it and learn stories and meet people and do anything. You could just do anything. So it was, um, it was awesome. And I never, the readership wasn't as high as like getting that kind of, that one AOL thing, but, and, and uh, you couldn't always get the, the story on there. It had to be like the right story at the right time. Um, but it, it showed me just that you could get into every nook and cranny of America. There was no more, there was no more barriers of do you subscribe or is there a late edition or an early edition? And then you could just write better stuff. So it was, um, and, and, and the internet was just as big in, in Lubbock, Texas as, as it was in Austin. It was the same internet. So you could just get everywhere with it. And so I really, uh, I really, enjoyed that job and that was a big job and you could get you know just it was it was terrific I, I covered a lot of AAU basketball back then I kind of covered the sport a little differently than most people uh, I wrote a book Soul Influence about AAU basketball and shoe companies 
just had a lot of opportunities to do different stuff, meet, meet a million people. It was, it was a great time for me to be to be there. The internet, it's sort of just, did you get work on the internet? Like people will eventually find you. That's um, that's a, the premise of this show again. <laughs> yeah, like, so our site, it was a pretty big site, but it wasn't ESPN.com. But if you're doing good work, you don't care what they're reading, where they're reading. Exactly. You just want to read it. So they're like, oh, I, and so you just would get, I remember going to the Final Four, and there'd be people who are like, obviously, you have the most devoted fans who go to this thing. Especially there's these people that just go every year. And like, people would stop me and be like, oh, yeah, I love reading every, you know, and you just find these people all over and be like, all right, this is, this is really working. So. Why, I, I was 100% in on the internet. I was never going to break after that. In that vein, real quickly, I, I was I think and he's someone my my dream guest for this show is do you do you know the name Kyle Welliston? Uh I do. So I mean, I don't really know what happened to him, but I don't know if you remember, like he basically for seven years just went to a hundred games a year of mid major games and started this site, the mid majority. And the guy's prose was like you know, Mark Twain. I mean, he's just a beautiful writer. And, but it's, it was such a niche topic, you know, covering mid-major basketball and his like that, you know, there was always a, a ceiling in terms of audience, but for those who found it and understood like what he was all about, it, it was, you know, and that, that just would never have existed prior to the internet. So there's, you know, you hear about Dan Wetzel's and Bill Simmons and all these people, which, and who've all had great success, but there's also, you know, Kyle Wellistons that, you know, will, will not be relegated to the, the, you know, dustbin of history for the people who, who knew them. And that's kind of what, you know, it was great. It was a great time for the internet because there was still, you could make a living, but it was, you know, you still had the ability to, to write freely or that's, that's the romance I have of it as someone who's 10. Really was. Yeah. Think about that. I'm going to be a college basketball writer. Oh, do you cover Duke? And North- no, I don't cover any of the good teams. <laughs> <laughs> cover the teams you never heard of. <laughs> but I'm also that's, that's the internet though that's it's just great so yeah Kyle did a good job he was really into it I'm also I, I remember I wrote this column once about or a story about the University of Evansville the Aces the Aces the Aces so this is this is not a big thing now but back then all basketball uniforms were like a tank top right they didn't have sleeves there was no sleeves and Evansville wore sleeves they were the only basketball team in, like, America that would Except, be. wait, the Louisiana Tech Lady Texters. Okay, yeah, La Tech, Tech, Lady Texters, that's true. And I cover women's basketball, too. I cover anything. Um, so, not, okay, they, they were the only men. And yeah, no, I'm just giving you a hard time. And I remember writing this story about them changing the uniform, and it just getting, it was in the middle of, like, the summer, I wrote this story. And, I mean, the feedback was, like, outrageous like people were either irate or making fun of them or even fans that weren't about Evansville or this love that there was this one team now they all wear uniform I mean now this fashion's changed everyone's wearing arms and, and you know leg yeah it's just it's total thing but at the time it was this this completely small story that was actually big I just remember being like this is lunatic this, this medium is just phenomenal like you know all of a sudden there's just this it's, I mean, they're talking like a thousand emails. That was back when they said emails. Well, yeah, it was pre. Oh, it was pre Twitter. Evansville uniform. Like, how many people have seen Evansville play? Well, <laughs> if you live in that part of the country, you have. 
And, you know, you're like a Southern Illinois basketball fan, and every year Evansville comes through, and you love that they have these uniforms, or you think their uniforms are stupid. Uh, here you are. So it was like, you didn't have to write about Kentucky and Duke to get an audience. You could just write about what was really happening in the sport, and the sports. Uh, you know, it's it's got all sorts of problems, and it's it, it only resonates so so big. But its core supporters are so passionate, and there's 330 teams. There's just an endless amount of stories and 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 customs and histories, and everyone's got their little thing. And so that's why it's such a it's such a phenomenal sport to cover. Uh, when if you can make a living covering just the sport. Yeah. No. It's. <laughs> So, I, I guess what I was going to say about the internet also for you is that when I think of your writing and the variety of topics you've touched, I mean, you're really one of the last of the generalists, I think, in terms of you, you, you touch on a lot of stuff. You're not just, you know, you, you had expertise in the college landscape for, and you've written books about that, but you still are a, you still jump in in a lot of different discussions and you're you have toes in a lot of different parts of the sort of sports media world do you do you attribute that to the to the early internet where you could write about anything and so you just as a result never you know spent 25 years on on one team you know as a beat reporter and that's where your your style sort of originated And yet, like, and yet, like, simultaneously, or, you know, at, at some point, you start going really deep on, you know, your, your book, Death to the FBS, um, and, and you're, and you're, you know, you've got, you've done a couple movies, the Aaron Hernandez one, um, the more, the more recent one about AAU hoops, the scheme, and you've done books too. Did you find that you were intentionally 
cultivating like the ability to go deep on a couple topics uh, to, to counteract the general nature of your daily work? Or was it just, you know, like, was it just because you found that interesting and that's what you wanted to do? I think you, you look for ways to tell stories. Um, and, and so sometimes a daily coverage is one way to tell a story, but there's also uh, additional ways. So, like, I've written books. I've written as told to books. I've written regular books. I've written movie scripts. I've written uh, documentary scripts. I've done all sorts of different writing. I always felt like uh, if I'm going to be a writer, just write, just do it. Don't pitch it all yourself. I um, agree. I agree. There's ways. Obviously, it's, it's like additional income and all that. I mean, it's business. It's a bit. It's a. It's a business. You know, production company and all that. It's a business. So it's sort of like having a side business, or, but it, it feeds off the other stuff. But if you take like that Aaron Hernandez story, you know, I was covering Aaron Hernandez from the. Uh, I knew him back at Florida a little bit, and then at the Patriots. Not, I didn't know him, but I had spoken to him. Um. But once he's up for the for the murder, once he's considered a suspect in the murder, we're uh, you know on this story. This is a huge story. So I'm covering it. I'm at the first trial down in Fall River, and writing these daily columns. I mean, the materials, you know, it's it's a terribly sad story. But in terms of oh yeah, it's gripping. It's story, it's gripping. Gripping and yeah, just phenomenal stuff. So I'm down there, and I'm with Kevin Armstrong, a, a writer at the time, was with the New York Daily News, but he's out of New York, and uh, worked for the Times and uh, SI. He does a lot of writing now, Washington Post. And we were like, you know, there's a, this needs to be told in one way. Like, there's so much material you keep. As big as the daily columns were, and they were getting read huge, because there's such a crime interest out there, people love. True. I don't know if you remember, remember cable TV before Donald Trump? Like, the, the, the cable TV channels used to cover crimes. Like, there would be a celebrity murder or just some. Oh, yeah, Nat- Natalie Holloway or whatever, yeah. Like Lacey Peterson and Scott Peterson, and, like, there's all these, they would jump on this, like, one usually murdered white woman yeah Na- Nancy Nancy Grace and yeah and cable TV was way better then because it was like they do 10 minutes of, now it's like 24 I can't watch it it's, 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 everyone's screaming about Donald Trump whether you like him or not it's like do you guys have any other interests in the world is there anything else going on like there's still people getting murdered no yeah I mean, it's... CNN and Fox and, and MSN they would have been all over Eric Hernandez and uh, they barely covered it so you have this daily material, but then you're like, this is, you know, we're like, well, we could write a book about this, but I'm like, the, the thing about the Aaron Hernandez story is you need to see it's a visual story better than a written one. The writing can be really good, but the visual, you need to, and a lot of people saw the doc, so I'm not going to, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it, uh, Killer Inside on Netflix, you know, to check it out. But it, uh... You need to see the home security footage of him carrying the gun. You need to see the courtroom testimony of him and his co-conspirator in the Boston murders, Alexander Bradley, that the intensity of him going. You need to see Jose Baez, the attorney, cross. Like, there, you can't just 
No, there's a lot of there's a lot of hyper local color that I think, especially if you're not from the Massachusetts area, understand or Connecticut, you know, understanding the subtleties of like what you know, where's he from? New Britain, Bristol, like what what these like hyper local sort of archetypes are as you're as you know, I I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, you need to see it. So it's like, how do I tell this story? the best way I can and we were like we need to have a like, this is a documentary this is a better documentary than it would be a book this would be this is a better and so you know you that's how you get in on that that's how I always got in on it was more like what's the best route to do this um, even the Boston Globe podcast on Aaron Hernandez is very very good uh, Gladiator they did a great job and I think there's just sometimes stories are best told in different manners and uh, and how do you reach? How do you reach those people? I worked on the book Glory Road. I wrote the book Glory Road about the 1966 Texas Western basketball team. Did you was, wait? So was the movie? I thought was the movie based on the book? Well, it's all it was like an all together. We ended up putting them all out at the same time. So the story's the story. And I worked with Don Haskins, the coach at UTEP, and through all the players and all that. But the movie's called Glory Road. The book's called Glory Road. It's all like a Disney project, but. You can write the book. You can be selfish and be like, oh, I'm a writer. You should read the book. But if you could have a Disney movie, that te- that's going to tell the story in a different way, in a very good way. And so you just kind of, I just think like I'm more into the, uh, I, don't, I don't want to, it sounds like, I don't know, it sounds ridiculous, but more into like just being a telling story. Yeah, right? storyteller. I, I don't, you, you can, you, you've, you've been around the game. No, it's yeah. It's there's a there's a little there can be pre- no there can be a pretentiousness when people say I'm a storyteller, but you've done it long enough. You, but it's really about saying being a sports writer. I can't tell the story as a sports writer. I need to tell. We need to try to tell the story in other ways that work better. So the Aaron Hernandez story was a was a really good story to tell visually. And and as a writer, you might want to sit there and say, "Oh, I could write it better." Eh, not really. Yeah. No, the me- the medium is the medium is the message, you know. I mean. Right. So, and nowadays like Netflix and stuff, I mean these things are just massive. That's how people want to consume their stories. Is these docs. I mean, they, this is how what they want. And so you could write You know, it used to be you get a summer it used to be like people would go, "What are you reading?" Now it's like, "What did you watch on Netflix?" Right. Or what podcast did you listen to? What you, yeah, what are you binging? And that's how like it's, So, you better change with that. With the, with the market and, and quite honestly it can be great you know great impactful stuff on that so some things are better not written so um, actually the, the films I want to I want to get into the film I really want to get into or, or any, and the work of yours that I'm most interested in especially for this audience if you haven't seen first of all if you haven't seen the scheme which is about the AAU trial uh, that came out of New York and we don't have to belabor all of it. I think most of our listeners are, per, you know, somewhat familiar with the f- attempts by the feds to take in coaches. And this, the movie does a great job of explaining sort of the inherent absurdity of the entire case. My question just for the listeners of this show is in your columns during that time, which you were writing quite, you know, quite a few of, you wrote, you chron- one of the characters you wrote a lot about was T.J. Gaznola, who was on the witness stand in that case, 
and who UMass fans know as a fixture in the tunnel at Mullins during the Kellogg years, um, who was an AAU guy out of Springfield. Um, you wrote a bunch about him, but in the movie, he was not featured. So I was just wondering, was that a editorial choice or did you not have the footage? I mean, what, what, what informed that decision? Oh, you were so you were in that movie. You were just there as a uh, as a commentator, basically. Yeah, I, I wasn't. But even still, that that story was the the uh, Christian Dawkins story, and and I like to say I I thought it's a, it's a it's a very good documentary. It's it's pretty enjoyable. But there were ten guys arrested. There was a ton of schools. Like you had to narrow it down. One, yeah, that is one version of that of the of the FBI scandal. Story. It's not a comprehensive one. It didn't set out to be a comprehensive one. It's TJ Gass. It's uh, I'm sorry. It's Christian Dawkins' story. Yeah, that's true. Of how this young guy. Is. And so Christian did not have um, contact with TJ Gasnola. TJ Gasnola was working basically with Adidas, and Christian. This wasn't Christian. I don't know. If yeah, no, you're right. That's a good point. It was a different circuit. Same same case, but it was all there were so many elements and strings to it. You're right. Right, so it, you know, you could tell that story is completely different with a different guy. It's not that this isn't a story or anything's inaccurate with Christian. It's just he's one part of it. But I don't know that TJ and Christian had a whole lot of time together. Uh, and even so, what Christian was trying to accomplish, really, I mean, there was there was crossovers, but he was dealing not with TJ Gasnola. He was dealing with um, just with other people at Adidas who then used to So it's. It's a big, sprawling story, but uh, so that's why he's not in there. So your entry... I doubt he would sit for the, uh, I doubt he would sit for the documentary. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, you, I mean, I, I'm noting it because you've chronicled him at some, I mean, I feel like somewhat extensively, no? He's been around. Now, remember, I wrote, he wasn't around then, but I wrote uh, Soul Influence, this book about the Nike Adidas shoe wars back in 2000 when they were searching for the next Michael Jordan uh, that, that he ended up getting LeBron James right before LeBron was to be getting from they should have waited a couple of years well then George Dorman Dor- George Dorman did a similar book a few years later right yeah yeah. and, and before that there was a book called Robert Cruz by Armin Katayan and um, uh, Alexander Wolf so about every 10 years yes one of these books. <laughs> and it's funny there's one even before that there's one in like he, it was, I think it was called like Stars for Sale or some book in like 1980 and then there was Royal Recruits in 1990 it was Soul Influence in 2000 2010 I think is when Dorman's book came out it was called The Play Your Hearts Out yeah and then in 2020 the scheme comes out you talk about the different ways that people consume the media it was book 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 and then it's a it's a documentary and so it's it's people it's not buying a 300 page book anymore to read about how AAU basketball is but they'll watch it yeah so it's just the way the country's changed the way society's changed um but it's all pretty much the same story right <laughs> the funny part of this whole thing is the NCAA stands around and goes oh my god what are we gonna do it's like this is never it's always been here the, 
what are you talking about? Like, I wrote an AAU basketball scandal in 2000 and 2020 of covering the same thing and listening to the same stuff from all the people in college sports going, well, this is out of control. What are we going to do? I was going to ask you that, actually, in the sense that you've you've chronicled this particular, you know, the basketball underworld, I'll call it, and the operators and some of the, you know, savory and not so savory types who inhabit it. I'm wondering, like, at a certain and you've had, a you know, outspoken, not, I don't want to say vested interest in changing the system, but if nothing else to expose its hypocrisies. My question is, does it ever get discouraging after, you know, two decades of toiling in that space and exposing a lot of the muck that there's been really no effort at, you know, like systemic reform of it at all? Uh, no, because I'm not, I don't, it, it doesn't really matter to me if there was more. Like I'm not a, um, I'm not the agent of change on it. I'm more like, I'll make fun of the hypocrisy, but like scandals in college, Sports has been great for me. Sure, <laughs> good for business. It's like it's like a political consultant who writes who does negative ads. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. <laughs> I, 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 one time I, I went to the uh, NCAA athletic directors convention. They had me sit on a panel or something it was down in Orlando, and this was after I I'd written basically two books. We wrote Death of the BCS, and we updated it, and those sold really well, and it was good. You know, it was good money in and all that and I just eviscerated the polls and I just I just like I'm just into more exposing the hypocrisy or, or the, the ridiculousness right and we're at this panel and the BCS is probably about to die and they, the, the moderator says to the whole room or maybe it already had died they come up the playoff they goes anyone here going to miss the BCS and I raised my nobody raised their hand they were all sick of it and I raised my hand I'm like this thing was great for me <laughs> I'm not, I don't work in college football. Like, I got two books out of this. Like, it was great. I loved it. It was great copy. People read it. All the, you know. So, I don't, I don't care if they, they perform it or not. I just make fun of them for pretending like we just learned of this situation. Shoe companies are paying high school basketball players to attend certain colleges. Oh, my God. Like, you know, again, if, if you take it to politics, like, sometimes people donate to political campaigns and express favors from the politicians. I'm shocked. Uh, like I think this is common knowledge. What are we What are we doing? Here? Sure. Or, no. Yeah. It's it's like there might be a bidding war for a recruit to what? go to a college. Like, and I, I used to rip all the people in college sports. Like, come sit in this courtroom every day. Like, you can hear directly what's going on. Like, it's a straight up bidding war now. So why do you let's change it? Nothing. Well, and my my whole thing is some periodically, you know, people will jump on. Um, on Twitter or whatever, and they'll uh, and they'll mention something to me about you know Camby taking money 25 years ago or you know this that and that. And I always say, let me be perfectly clear when I'm when I'm talking about any of this stuff, I don't care. I think those kids should get money. I think it's there to me. So like I, I have no ethical qualms about it. If anything, I think it it can be egregious when they're not getting money. So when I'm never going to go after another team for cheating, but I'm always going to go, or quote unquote cheating, right? But I'm always going to go after another team's fan base for being sanctimonious. And so, you know, you hear enough things over the years and you trust enough people over the years that there's a lot of coaches, I don't even need to name them on this podcast, who fancy themselves as, you know, great leaders of men and, you know, 
not that not that being a great leader of men doesn't you know precludes you from letting your kids take money but you know they they fancy themselves as above the fray and they're they're just not so i'm not gonna the, so the only time i'm gonna get mad is when they're fancying them so that's why calipari is great because he's basically like acknowledging the way of the world and the way it exists and to me i, I have a, a deep abiding respect for that rather than pretending this whole enterprise is something that it's not exactly um and that's 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 the whole thing. Every so when I started really covering college basketball, even at Basketball Times, I, I spent a ton of time covering AAU basketball, which is what led to sole influence. So I would go to AAU tournaments, and there was nobody covering those things. It'd be like the Bob Gibbons and some of those like scouts, but there was just almost nobody writing about it. So I would I got to know all the AAU coaches and different middlemen and handlers and all of them. I mean, a bunch of them went to prison. I mean, this is, talk about a colorful, you know, this is the Star Wars bar of, of sports. And, but a lot of them are, are, are really good guys. And, and it's funny. I mean, we got everything from prominent NBA agents now to guys that went to prison um, coming out of that era of AAU basketball. And you, 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 uh, by covering it from the ground up rather than like just whatever the schools are telling you or covering games, you got the truth. And so you just, I just knew that pretty much every single school had some violations at, I mean, it, you know, you just say, well, you could sit there and be like, well, that school doesn't cheat. And these guys would just laugh and be like, really? Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like it's a joke, right? Like, and it could be anything. It could be, I remember being at a college, uh, at a school, I ran into this AAU guy, and uh, he was from about a couple hours away, and he drove drove a couple kids in his town over to an unofficial visit at the school. It's a Big Ten school, and uh, and uh, he's like, I'm like, oh, you going all the way over here? He's like, yeah, the guys want to see it, it was good. And he goes, yeah, they give me gas money. And he goes, uh, you don't cost $400 in gas to drive two hours? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just funny. Like, even the little things that are going on like that. Now, my thing would be, here's a guy taking a Saturday and driving three kids to, to motivate them to go to college. Who cares if they give them $400, right? 100%. <laughs> What's the downside? They, they're, making, they're making billions, like what? <laughs> right, right, this school's got, so they give them the gas money and a little extra for lunch on the way home and a little extra for your time. Who cares? Doesn't matter, but, that's technically like, oh my goodness, right? And otherwise, the guy's not driving over, and these three kids aren't seeing school, and they're not, and they're young, and they need motivation, and like, there's just nothing bad happening here. If you if you look at, it, I always say like, you take the, the the AAU coach and say, all right, this guy was paying the kids to play for his team, and he's flying them all over the country, getting exposure, trying to train them, and and do all this stuff, and he's taking money from this and this and this, and funding his operation. And you say, okay, what if that was a boxing gym? What if that's a city boxing gym? And you say, I took 15 kids off the street this summer, and we boxed and we trained, but I had to take some money from Bob Arum or something like yeah. that. And, and, and you, they build a statue for that guy in the middle of the city. Yeah. They put a statue up and say, this guy helped the youth of our community, and he produced, you know, 11 professional boxers and got if they had boxing scholarships. But, you know, they had got 40 kids in over 10 years of scholarships to, to, to college and all this stuff, you, you, you'd be a hero. 
I also college basketball because of these stupid rules. They put those guys in jail. Yeah, and I and I also don't think it's like, like what is going on here? Like, what are you doing? Like taking that gas money? That, that might be a federal offense if you want to go deep on it. And you're like, good lord, what are you doing? This guy's a nice guy. He's driving the kids over on a Saturday to watch a basketball game. Yeah, and I, and I, a nice city in their neighborhood. And I also, I also think it's not monolithic, right? Like I've been around enough people in the basketball world now that it's like any other industry or any profession or any group of people, you have some shady people who even within the confines of a shady system are doing it especially shady and they're assholes or whatever. And then you have some people who are world-class, you know, amazing, you know, transformers of kids' lives. And unfortunately in, in the way it gets, you know, it shakes out is, and for a variety of reasons, you know, they get painted as it's all the AAU underworld. It's like, well, you gotta, there's gradations to things. There's nuance to things. It's not, it's not like every person who inhabits this orbit is the same exact human being. There's also guys who are, who will strike people as very shady or whatever because of how they, you know, their aesthetic or how they come across. And yet they're, weirdly adamant about never taking money. So like it, it, all these things are, are, you know, filled with a lot more gray than I think fans want to acknowledge because fans want to expose by nature, want to expose the egregiousness of, of their rivals, right? Like that's the motivation of a fan. And so in that vein, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, you, you have a ton of sources, you've been around the game forever. I'm very curious when people bring you stories, right? And you know, they have their motivations when they tip, you know, tip you off with story ideas. Do you as a as a writer uh, kind of try to fig- weigh, you know, sort of weigh which ones to use, which ones are legitimate, which ones are just somebody self-serving because they want to get some other school on violations for some petty bullshit? Like, do you are you forced to make or when you were doing this work, were you forced to sort of develop a moral compass about how to determine what is re- you deem reportable and what's not? Well, I mean, you've got to make that judgment all the time. Um, on it, and every, everyone's got a motivation or they're not calling. You know, uh, so you always have to do that. Now, I mean, we've done, at Yahoo, we did probably a million college investigations. As much as I think the guys should be paid and advocated that, not paid, but allowed to sign their own endorsement deals. And, you know, I'm, I'm very... You know, I think the NCAA rules and this whole operation where they criminalize something because a private industry wants to maintain a tax dodge uh, is not, is, is totally absurd. There's still the rules, right? Like, in boxing, I cover boxing. I don't like the 10-point must system in boxing. I don't like the way they score boxing. But it's still the rule. So, at the end of the day, you have to fight the way the rules are, or you have to play. I may not like, uh, whatever, something in in, in 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 any sport, the rule, but you have to play by the rule. You can't, you can't, if you have a sour cap in football, you can't just sit there and be like, oh, we're 50 million on the sour cap. You should get caught. I mean, you, you, you agree to this deal. So the violations, and part of our motivation always in covering the violations was to show how the rules aren't being followed. Because there's a lot of media for a long time that would just paint everything as black hats and white hats. And so it might be Jerry Tarkanius cheating, but nobody else is. It's like, no, they're all, they're, they're all great. Right? Calipari's the evil one. The rest of them are. Nah, not really. That isn't how it works. They're all gray hats. You can't be in this with 
popular on the on the uh, no, not at all uh, podcast. But he had this great line. We we did the Nate Miles story from uh, on on Calhoun uh, in Yukon back in the back in the day. It's a big scandal story. But he had this great line, and he goes, "Yeah, being a college coach's reputation." I'm paraphrasing, but it's like it's like getting a new car. You drive around long enough, you're gonna get some dings in you. Right. <laughs> I love Calhoun. Uh, really funny guy. Really witty. But I, I totally get the, the the snarkiness he would bring to UMass. But uh, but I was like, this is a great, this is a great reputation. It's like Chichesky's just driven too long, man. He's just on the road. Yeah, I mean, it's like Zion Williamson's gonna get some money, man. If you think you're getting Zion Williams and he's just killing up for zero, no, nobody could possibly believe that. This guy is a so eventually you get the things, but we did all these stuff. I mean, we UConn, we did Oregon football, we did Miami, Nevin Shapiro, Reggie Bush story, um, UConn, we went to Alabama, I mean, uh, Willie Lyles and Texas football. I mean, all sorts of different scandals through the years. So you 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 don't just weigh what you're getting, but you spend months and months and months trying to make sure you're right uh, because. If I got any of those wrong, my career's over. Like, we did a Jim Trestle story uh, in Terrell Pryor, and it was basically like Trestle, you know, Trestle knew about Terrell Pryor getting all this stuff and didn't care and his violation of his contract. And I mean, they called him the senator. I mean, like, boy, if this, if this isn't 100%, like, someone's losing their job. And uh, Jim Trestle can get another one really easy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and I always, I always think like you have to be hundred percent on everything, so they're exhausting to do. So you never take anyone's word for anything right away. It's all documentation and just endless reporting on on everything. So you don't, you, I mean, you're deeply immersed in the in the college sports landscape still. But you do, do you follow UMass at all? I don't really. Uh, I, I don't. They, I. Probably not good to admit on this, but uh, I'm not really a fan of anything other than the Boston Bruins. I don't cover hockey. Yeah. And I've always been a, I grew up a huge Bruins fan. That's always my favorite team. So I, I follow the Bruins as a fan, and then I, the Celtics and Patriots as a yeah uh, as a as a business. I've known Brad Stevens a long time. Also, Patriots are. I mean, there are times. There was one year with the Patriots. They won the Super Bowl. Aaron Hernandez was arrested and tried for murder, and Brady was dealing with deflate gate. <laughs> and one calendar year, I think I wrote like 70% of my columns about the movie. Yeah. Like that was the greatest, greatest show in journalism. It was, I mean, think about that. Your star tight end is up for murder. Your star quarterback is accused of you win the Super Bowl all in the same year. And yet, a very closed, a very closed-off organization that I would imagine would probably do whatever they can to, to impede your access to these stories. Oh yeah, so, in some ways, yeah. I mean, it, but that does I mean, you're in court. Right. Court. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't mask that. Yeah, no. It's public record. Yeah, I'm not. You're just, you're not just getting. It is when we did the Hernandez doc. Like people are like, well, you should add like Brady and. Uh, Belichick in it, like, do you really go Belichick's to sit for an interview with this documentary? <laughs> we would have loved to talk to him. Right. <laughs> I, 
I won't. I won't get. I. You know what's funny? I won't get into the because like not everybody on this podcast knows my my whole life story. But I, when I was freelance reporting some many years back, I did a story about something that had to peripherally do with Belichick, and I got a quote from him. But he wouldn't. He, he would only do it through email, and he his press guy sent it to me like five minutes before the deadline, and it was like this. Very, it was the same sort of quote you'd hear in a presser, and and I was like, it was explained to me like that I had, you know, land. I remember it came out and people were like, "Wow, you got Belichick in a story," and I was like, "What do you mean?" He gave me like a, and everybody was like, "No, that's like that's something," you know. <laughs> it is something, yeah. He I, he will do some interviews and he will talk to him on the phone, but you're not getting like again like Tom Brady sit for the interview of your this teammate you you kind of knew, uh, you know, triple murder. I mean, like. Like, what motivation would that be? He's like, I didn't know the guy. You know, I wasn't <laughs> Like, the guy was at work. I threw a touchdown pass. I didn't know he was out there involved in murders and double homicides and stuff. So it's like, people get a little, uh, yeah, I mean, hey, it would have been great, but that's, you got to understand what the, the motivations are. So even if they're not, it, it's, it's, it, you're not just walking into practice, right? This isn't the 1994 uh, UMass Minute Man. Uh, uh, there's still, but that it, the interest is so much bigger because it's the NFL. It's just, uh, I just, whatever the interesting story is, I want to write about. Yeah. It doesn't have the actual sport. Like I don't. So let me let me ask you. Okay. There was very few sports. There was no sports writers at the Hernandez trial, and our readership was massive, and it was endlessly fascinating because it was like this is this is more interesting to me than whether you know. Patrick Chung signed an extension for two years. Well, that, that's my, like, I've, any sports writing I enjoy at this point, is, you know, especially with, like, two kids and a lot going on, is, like, I, I'm much more drawn to story than I am, unless it's my teams, you know, I, I I would much prefer story to actual sort of plot developments of a season, you know, in a game and who won the, I just, I don't, I can watch that. I don't need to read about it, you know. Um my question, though, is two two things because I'm sure you got to probably go soon. But if you, you you understand the landscape of college sports broadly and where the Northeast in particular sits in that, and I'm wondering, especially given Corona and the news just before we recorded that UConn is not playing football this year, which you know we'll see if that has a domino effect, but it certainly will probably impact UMass. We we don't have them on the schedule now. Do you think? Corona could be the beginning of the death knell for college football in the Northeast. I hate to be so grim and I, I really enjoy UMass football, but I've had these concerns for a while and I, I sort of wanted to get a national perspective on this. So one of our ongoing jokes on the sports college podcast is that you tell the UMass to combine and make I was going to ask you about that too. Don't you want to Yeah. Like, you know, like two high schools no longer have enough football players, so they combine or hockey. You see it in the hockey sometimes. Yes, yes. It's a merger. I'm like, they both suck, so might as well, you know, maybe just play, play the games in like a parking lot, holy or something, halfway or wherever. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, the thing about college athletics is for 50 years, the budgets kept going up. And more money, more money, more money, more money. And salaries fell. Everything got better. We joke like Curry Hicks Cage is not good enough. Mullen Center is good enough. Well, that, that's not good enough either. We need a little practice facility. 
And that's just at UMass. Yeah. Uh, believe me, Curry X Cage is good enough for those guys to practice in these weeks of thinking. Yeah. They've been back since. So, you know, how much money was spent on facilities that they now have debt service on, that they have mortgage on? How much was, you know, so much the salaries are up. They're making way more money now than they were back then. Everything's bigger. And they, they just assumed it would go up and up and up. But it was not sustainable. It didn't make a lot of sense. It was in many ways a waste of money or huge debts were made. So does this bring a, a sobriety to the process where you start saying what's important? Now, again, I'm sure this is not popular on this podcast. I don't, and I don't really follow the team. I did go see a UMass football game at Michigan one because um, I thought it was just a riot that they're playing there. They played, what was it, the one where they almost won? Yeah, they were in the game in the third. I was like, Rich Rodriguez is done. I was taunting all the Michigan fans around me. Like, yes, absolutely stink. <laughs> and that was FC, remember, that was FCS UMass. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it, I probably was, yeah. I was like, oh my God, you must play. Um, anyway, I don't think they should be playing Division One A football. I opposed it from the start. It makes no sense to me. It's a waste of money. They're never going to be good. It's just, they're never going to be good. If a coach could get them to six and six, it would be a miracle, and then that coach would leave. Mark Whipple's a hell of a coach. I mean, you just can't do it. I'm, I got it. For, for the sake of our listeners, I, I got to at least make the counter point real quickly. Because I, I know they're all mad at me now. They're no, yeah, I mean, look. Like me, but now they really don't like me. So, so two things I would say about Mark Whipple. Mark Whipple was a hell of a coach in 98 and 2000 and 2003. He had lost, you know, and I, and I, I love what he did for the program, but he, he had it's lost. Mark Whipple's not winning there. Bill Belichick ain't winning there. All right, all right. Let me make the counterpoint, though. So I'm not saying, by the way, your thing about six and six in a bowl game and someone leaves and goes elsewhere is essentially the model they're employing right now where they've hired, you know, a 35-year-old. It's basically the P.J. Fleck at, you know, Western Michigan model. And and I agree. That's the – that is the – the, the, the blueprint for how you win at UMass, you get a young coach who's ambitious, recruits well, and, and, and you know, is there four or five years, and then he goes to greener pastures. And I think that's fine. The problem was Mark Whipple wasn't that guy when he returned. He was he, he had lost his fastball in terms of just his intensity was not – I mean, it just was a different – you know, it, and it was a hard job. He could scheme and, and you know – he schemed quite well. I mean, they lost a lot of games by close margins. He beat BYU. Like he did some things that merit, you know, applause, but he had lost his fastball. The the real thing was when they went FBS, there wasn't a plan. Neil Brown, who's now at West Virginia, wanted the job, didn't get it. They went with Charlie Molnar, who was Brian Kelly's OC, but didn't actually call plays and is now a position coach at Idaho. So you can say, you know, that tells you what you need to know there. So I think, yes, structurally, there are forces about the Northeast that make it very difficult. UMass has not helped themselves with the way they've gone about hiring. And now, you know, we'll see with a young coach who is an offensive coordinator at Florida State. And, you know, he has an interesting pedigree. We'll see. Um, I think, though, that the way you and his pitch is very interesting. He's basically trying to make UMass because of its increased academic rep. As a uh, as sort of the uh, uh, an elite G5 program because 
in the G5, you know, it's a pretty reputable institution. And I think the way you do it, if you do it, is you got to sell Western Mass as a game day experience because there is something unique about, you know, it's like when you go out to Penn State, think about that, but one fifth of the scale, your, your people are coming from Philly and Pittsburgh for the day. UMass is a fun weekend experience to, to go to in the fall. And I think you can be a respectable G5 team, but the nature of the power five is such that, yeah, you might be right. The, the, it's very difficult to figure out what you do, even if you play well in G5, because you don't have a shot. So that's my counterpoint. Well, every college football environment is fun. I mean, I, I, get, I grant you that. You can try. The academic thing's interesting. Um, but there are other schools that try. Like Miami, Ohio is a pretty good academic school. They're never really any good. There's no players. There's no players around there. You're constantly trying to win recruiting battles on someone else's turf. Western Michigan is, is within a two and a half hour drive. It's got like a thousand Division One football players. Yeah, no, you're right. Okay, the two and a half hour drive. How many, how many kids a year play D1 football? In, in, out of Massachusetts. It's like 25. 25? And most 30. Of you call it UMass. I don't, I, 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 yeah, maybe it is 30. You just, you don't have players. I would, if I was, I, I know this is a totally impossible, right? I get it. But I would put your money in the sports you can win. So I would put all my money into hockey and lacrosse and maybe a women's soccer. Wait, what about basketball? Basketball's fine. Keep playing basketball. Basketball is Yeah, no, that was always a no-brainer. It was like the infrastructure was there. You're in the best league in the country. People love the sport. Right. There's players around. Kids can handle um, it'll, this is This should work. And it didn't work. And it was like, this is this is where you spend your money. Yeah, you make it so you're like North Dakota. you got the greatest facilities in the country. Same thing with lacrosse. Can lacrosse be as good as Duke and those guys? I don't, I don't think so. But it can be pretty close. They, they, they've had success before. If you had the most decked out facilities, and you put all, you build a three million dollar practice facility or locker room for lacrosse, and now you're showing something, you're going to get a return on that investment. And what I have seen in college athletics is whatever team is doing, the alums will get excited about it. So, and so like LSU loves their football team. LSU also loves their gymnastics team. Baseball. They're more into gymnastics and yeah. baseball than they are basketball. They will fill up. Oklahoma will fill their gymnastics arena up. Alabama, it's like things like that. People get excited about that sport. Baseball is one of them. You can, you, whatever school you're at, if you're winning, people are excited about UMass hockey. Yeah, UMass. So I think I think hockey. You yeah. spend gazillion dollars on football when your just your your return on investment is just a it is a complete long shot. Well, so. So here's the thing. You, you, the thing about it is counterintuitively is that because my answer is how do you get good at UMass? Well, you find some guy, you find a T Boone Pickens, and that's not really going to happen because the budget annually for football is like ten million bucks, which takes up you know a, a fifth or so of the 
overall budget. And yet that's one fifth, one sixth, one seventh of some of these schools you're playing, especially because you're an independent. So it's almost like you can't keep up in that arms race. I, I agree. Um, but I think there's a way of finding a different type of regional niche and, you know, that can make you uh, viable in a, in a, in a, in a way that's not because FCS, you lose more money, you know, which is counterintuitive, but you do. It's a, uh, you, you know, so. But you lose I, more money, but you win. Yeah, yeah, I hear, I hear that, but we could. That's a, you know, you could go on that discussion forever. Yeah, to me, it's like if you have a winning team, you're contributing to the excitement of your campus. Sure, but you're, you're giving alumni stuff to do. Hey, let's go up and watch them play UNH, or let's go play URI. We live in love. Playing, and it's not that there isn't some. Like I know these guys take trips. Like, hey, let's go to the Auburn game. It's like a way to see these things. I get all that. It's it's, it's fun. But I just think, in terms of your chance of winning and having success, it just it's just so hard. And you know, people point like, well, UConn made the Fiesta Bowl once, right? There's no difference. UMass can do anything UConn can do, and I would say, yeah, probably. But that was back when the Big East existed. Yep, and yep. They have, they have consolidated power in hand. Um, so that, the Big East doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the only schools that got out are toiling basically near the bottom of whatever league they're in. And those were all schools with, you know, West Virginia, Rutgers, Syracuse, places had that infrastructure. Like, UConn's never getting back to a bowl game like that. They just shut down their season. Yeah. You know, and well, they probably got Brady Edsel a two thousand dollar bonus just for for not losing a game. I'm sure he's got some of this contract. Well, I was, I was uh, <laughs> undefeated season. For <laughs> the first team to cancel, we get two grand. Cancel culture has come for UConn football. Um, I know this is completely unpopular. I get it. And no, I get it. But what I would say, but if you're running a business, you sit there and say, "Here's our resources. What's going to work? This is never going to work." And if we if we trim down and go back to one double A, we can have some of the success. Or, or whatever we do, but if we pump more money into hockey, lacrosse, and, and, and women's soccer, or field hockey, or softball, maybe we can. Like, you can't, I remember this, Bob Markham said this to me once, like, you can't, you can't expect every team to be nationally right. We're never going to be a national power in tennis. It's not going to happen. Like, the tennis seats and the winds whipping there. <laughs> It's freezing. Like, but no, see, see, t- see, to me, like even hearing this and I reject the premise somewhat, which I gave you my argument on. But, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a basketball fan first. Right. So that's my I, and I make no bones about it. That's my primary interest. Basketball players around. You can get those basketball players and win. We, that's been right. So what I'm saying is if I were to take that 10 million that that football spent theoretically. And again, I don't want to do this. But if I were, I would put a lot of it in basketball, not in because I think. To get for a for a university like I think you can be what VCU is and you can be what you know conceivably what Dayton is right or and basically be a top four pro you have the facilities you have kids in the area you become a top four like a ten power and then maybe that you know then that's like okay maybe you go to the AAC now right and so there's a there's so you spend that money you know basketball spends like four million a year if you put three or four million extra into it, that's a significant upgrade. You're getting, you know, you, you know, so that I would, I just think like, I hear what you're saying. It's basketball I'd spend on, but I also would just say, what, what are the sports we have a chance? 
there are a lot of kids playing lacrosse in Massachusetts. There's in New England. There's and, and in New York where you're always going to recruit at. North Jersey, Long Island, and Westchester County. Gonna, I mean, everybody went to UMass. Those kids who went, came up, just came up there for school. There's a ton of kids that uh, that play hockey in those areas. You can win in those two sports. We've been to Final Fours in those two sports. Football. So if you take that ten million. I understand that you're not going to shut the whole thing down. But let's say you did, and you would lose something if you didn't have a football program. And Holy Cross still has a football right? like whatever. Um, but you take that $10 million and you say three, 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 and all of a sudden it's like, I got the most decked out lacrosse program in the country. You know, there's potential. And, and do you really care? If at the end of the day, if UMass is winning and you're a fan, is that better or is it? Well, no, I mean, I, I think you, you got to I think the national the na- national nature of the sport of the college sports world now is such that, unfortunately, lacrosse and hockey hockey has some clout regionally for sure. But it doesn't give it doesn't do for the institutional reputation nationally. What really what basketball and football do? I mean, that's you know, there's no other way to slice it. Like the the only sports that people are attuned to across the country in terms of the brand name. So, so hear me out. You may, you may disagree with this because I'm not an expert on how to attract kids. <laughs> Nor am I. <laughs> You're trying to create a campus environment that is fun. Alabama has had a surge in applications because all these kids grew up watching these parties every Saturday on at Alabama. And the school literally went out and said, we're going to recruit regular students from all over the country. So they, they have more out-of-state students than in-state students at yeah. the University of Alabama. Okay, now, I don't know if that's a really good idea, but whatever, that's their plan. You want to create something that drags people in. A, a, a quarter-filled McWork Alumni Stadium and losing games on and, wrote, and having your name up there because you lost to Auburn 59-14, to 14, does that create it? Or does, in the spring, that you know, uh, they, they fill up for a lacrosse game that's a ton of fun. Like, what, you know, what, what creates that excitement on campus that kids want to enjoy themselves and, and say, I want to be a part of that. And I don't think football does that until you win or have this years and years and years. Of, I mean, you, you need regular fans in Massachusetts to all of a sudden say, I want to go spend my time with UMass football. They've had 100 years to get into Boston College football, and they don't care. They like the Patriots. So it's like, how how are you going to create that atmosphere? And, and I just think you're just throwing, you're chasing a, a, a rabbit, and you're not even in the right hole. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's just not happening. So to me, it's like if, if kids are sitting there saying, "Oh, it's so much fun. We go to these hockey games. We go to these cross games, and the campus is alive and it's exciting." That's how you attract students. Not, oh yeah, but you know, guess what? We're playing BYU. Uh, um, I mean, it's it's funny because <laughs> I just realized we're both making each other's point. You're making the point. I'm saying UMass can be a fun regional product you're, uh, for football. And you're saying UMass lacrosse can be a fun national product in a niche sport. So I'm saying... It's regional too, though. It's regional because kids don't care about lacrosse. Right, no, no, right. Okay. So, But I'm saying, like, I still think regional football quality is I also don't think you need to invest a ton in look I mean yes they need more money but and Garber's a great place to go I just yeah you, you know I, I, again all that money to me so, okay I'm, there's no look 
lacrosse locker room as good as the UMass football locker That's probably true, yeah. <laughs> what, if you, what if you created it? Yeah, I mean, you got to have the donors, too. I mean, you know, I mean, it's interesting because there are... You have the locker room. You literally built it on your campus. What if you built that for the lacrosse team? And now you're bringing recruits in and saying, look how we treat you. What do you build facilities for? It's not so the guy can change into a uniform. Right, of course. That, right? You do it to, create, to, to, to attract the next level of recruit. Like we said, you could practice fine in Curry Hicks Cage while PE classes are going around. But you have your own personal thing because that's the only way to get good basketball players. So, like, I agree. Put money into basketball. They should be a top four team in the a Anything less than that is really not acceptable. Like they should make, they should win the A ten. They should be in the NCAA tournament every four years. Maybe two out every four years. Like, there's no reason UMass basketball shouldn't be better. Yeah, and I think I think we're what's well, really. You got no shot. It's it's funny because I think where this is very fitting with Corona right now. But I think UMass basketball is just about to turn the corner and next season. Like, are you familiar at all with Trey Mitchell? Uh, yes. I know that. I mean, I think he's going to be, he'll be the first NBA player in in some time. So there's exciting things happening. Uh, We don't have to dwell on football. Basketball should be good. Yeah, Yeah. basketball should be good. There's no excuses for nothing. So so before we go, just if there's anything you want to, you want to hawk or tout or, you know, tell people to look at or, you know, say about your time at UMass and any parting thoughts. And we really appreciate you coming on the show for, I don't know why I'm saying we, it's just me, but. I really appreciate <laughs> Right, that's I gotta make it seem like a really official yeah, legit legit yeah. product. Yeah, yeah, he's the producer Bennett, he's actually working today, so um uh, no, no, I appreciate you coming on. It's kinda of fun. Uh it wasn't kinda of fun, it's good good UMass talk. It would have been better with uh the beer uptown and some Antonio's pizza, but other than that. And you're in Detroit, so um if I'm ever out there I I'll let you know. Um Yeah. Tell, tell the guys, uh, you know, your show. We, I enjoy it, and I think my big point of pride here on this show is that, like, we just want the world. I think our the fan base wants the world to know that there there remain a not insignificant number of dedicated diehard UMass fans, and obviously we're we're dwarfed by the power a lot of the Power Fives, but you know we 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 can hang with the BCs and the other Yukons a bit, you know, and I think that. It's always good to get people who are associated with UMass like you just on their radar that people still give a shit about this stuff and that we, uh, you know, your voice can, you know, it's not your responsibility as a journalist, but, you know, if, if you, you know, if you tout the program, that's that that only helps. So uh, I'm not I'm, I shouldn't be. I, I, I got friends, man. I got don't friends just donate too much money to the place. All of that, I got also, I mean, I went, I went there. I know how big it is, and I, I loved uh, that hockey world a couple years ago, and, uh, like, the scene up in Buffalo of how many people on short notice, like, travel. So. Did you go? UMass fan, but I did not, but uh, I think it was during the Ma- – I covered the Masters when I was down there. Yeah, um, but you were saying uh, the UMass fan base what? They're, they're, they're sitting there waiting for something to go crazy for them. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. And, and like, you, you know, as an example, you're – the, the, just the people in Western Massachusetts, you know, uh, yeah, they're Patriots, Celtics fans out there, but that's this is the one you can go to. It's the one you can, you know, you can experience. Um, it's not, you know, this huge trip. And one of the great things about UMass, and uh, uh, at least you know for a long time, I think it's getting like we're, we're getting too many smart kids in there. I don't know, but it was always very just 
it was just accessible for, for people in the state to, to, uh, to be a part of, right? Like everyone's welcome. And, uh, uh, the athletics can be great. So I'm hoping basketball gets cranking again. I hope hockey stays up and, uh, and all of that. And I, and I would love to be proven completely wrong about this. All right, well, that's a challenge to Walt Bell. You can take it up with him, and uh, your mentions might be flooded, but I think I will urge people to be to be uh, tame because you uh, coming on the show for 100 minutes was uh, something I'm eternally appreciative of. I get yelled at every day. It's part of the job. All right, Dan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Take care. From my past, every ridiculous ass. She attended UMass and she passed every class. Walked down the hall with a stuck up sass. Fuck the basketball players. She liked how they pass. But when I used to hit it, all right, let's go to our mailbag tonight. I asked for the questions a bit late in the day. Don't know how many I'll get, but it's a long episode with Wetzel, as you just heard. So, um, oh, look, Bamford said he'll we'll get it on the books for next week. Nice. All right. Tyler O'Tay says, is UMass all the way back? Uh, in the figurative sense of just the energy and vibes emanating from UMass Twitter, we never went away. But you could argue that we're even further along. So yes, we're more than all the way back if you count it in those terms. In practical, real-world material terms, no. Despite the 500000 or so that they've raised this week and enthusiasm emanating from the fan base this is a difficult time we just got word this evening that UMass kids are probably not coming back to campus I mean these are these are really dark grim times and uh, you know if no kids are there I worry about that basically I, I would assume precludes basketball practice happening in the fall semester, right? I mean, so no, we're not all the way back when it comes to the actual real-world UMass stuff. Um, But, boy, I hope we will be. Evan O'Sullivan, he says, not sure if this question has been asked before, but what NBA player would be a good comparable for Trey Mitchell in terms of skill set and play style? I get Carl Anthony Towns vibes personally. Towns is much taller and uh, just he's just a much taller dude, I think. And frankly, really dominant. I mean, I don't watch a lot of NBA until the playoffs, so I don't see a lot of Towns because the T Wolves was he on the T? He's still in the T Wolves, right? They won't really make it past maybe the first round or so, but. Um, I've heard Joaquin Noah. No, no, sorry, sorry. Al Horford, a little bit of Al Horford. You know, he's a very unique player because he has old school back to the basket moves, but he can step out and shoot it in the same way that former St. Joe's star DeAndre Bembry could, but he was leaner and, you know, had more of a wing vibe. So he's really, he's quite unique. I mean, Horford and Bembry combo in some weird way, but. So tough because I just don't watch enough NBA anymore. Um, I don't know. I would like to hear what others say. I've thought about this and I just don't really have a great answer. Old school, there's like a leaner, uh, not yet as tough 
Charles Oakley vibe with that shot a bit where Oakley had a mid-range game, which is sort of a thing of the past. And I'm trying to think, like, like if you anyone remembers Charles Smith, I mean, my NBA references are basically, when I watched the NBA militantly, was like 1993 to like 2002. Um, yeah, so it's a little tricky. I mean, I guess you could say there's like hints of Tayshaun Prince, but no, he's not that lean. DeAndre Dominguez, by the way, I think has a lot of Tayshaun Prince. I think DeAndre Dominguez would be very good, just as an aside. Um, let's see. Stu Ludicky, former guest of the show, says, what happens to Trey this season? Stats go down a little bit. By the way, Stu is a major contributor to the UMass Twitter Fund. What happens to Trey this season? Stats go down a little bit because of the team being deeper, or he goes crazy and drops 22-10 and 10 after an offseason of improvements because he's just that good regardless of the roster. Could totally go either way. And honestly, whichever one helps winning more will be where he goes. He's going to be really tough to stop. And... Because he can score in such a wide variety of ways, and because I think opposing bigs are going to be a little sluggish at the start of the year, and I don't think Trey will. I don't think he'll lose a beat. I think he'll be fucking dominant. He could be 22-10, and 10, yeah. Mike LaCapo, who for the first time in the history of submitting questions to this program, asked a question that wasn't... So you should know, many of you do, Mike asks the same question every episode, and I've just started ignoring it, which is, is UMass too good for the Mac? I just, I just ignore it. It's sort of, like, become almost a recurring riff. For whatever reason, pandemic fuck my people. You know, the, uh, the cosmos aligned, and he asks a different question. He says, how does the 2020 CHS, Curry age, I presume, not Chicopee High School, college basketball bubble work? Although... The 2020 Chicopee High School college bubble is a funny concept. Just thinking of, like, the top 25 teams in the country is all being in Chicopee. It's, like, sponsored by Spalding, also from Chicopee. And it's just CYO and rec gyms and Ys around Chicopee. And each team has, like, their own haunts. It's, like, Chicopee Comp hosts, like, Duke and Kentucky. And then, you know, Chicopee High hosts, like, Kansas and... UCLA or something. Um, and then maybe you expand to like Holyoke too. Great for, uh, great like, great sort of uh, stimulus plan for the sort of struggling ham- parts of Hamden County. Just like Chicopee, Holyoke, fuck it, we'll throw in Springfield. Every beat basketball team in the country comes to Hamden County and has like a little quarters and it's just like a mini bubble. So it's basically the Disney World of Hamden County. Everybody's like vying to be in Longmeadow, but very few get that. I love this. I love this concept. You should imagine this. Every Division One basketball team, 351 teams, posts up in Hamden County, Massachusetts. Maybe extend a little bit in Western Mass. Fuck it. Put the whole bubble over. We'll do like Berkshire County. A few teams in Pittsfield, you know, send some teams up to like, like the big coveted spots would be 
D1 teams trying to get, like, the Williams College gym as their practice facility. That would be, like, creme de la creme. But UMass would have a huge advantage because they'd have their own stuff. You'd have a couple other teams on campus. You'd have the Cage. You know, Northampton High School would have, you know, would be a coveted spot. Smith College. Like, Mount Holyoke. Be great. Be so good. 350 Division One basketball teams coming to Western Mass, the birthplace of basketball. Fuck it. This might actually be my plan now that I'm talking myself into it. This is so good. Holy shit. This is this is genius. The birthplace of basketball. And you have actually a lot of basketball infrastructure given that, you know, you're not going to have fans there. So Springfield College, Western New England, AIC, each of those probably has a random practice gym too. So you could fit like six schools there. You could do conferences by city. So the ACC maybe comes to Springfield and then, you know, like the SWAC or the Patriot League or some small league is like based in East Hampton or something, you know, like Williston has like five courts there. Boom. There's your, there's your SWAC facility. You, you take old classrooms and you make them – oh, man, this is so good. Everybody flies into Bradley. You make that Barnes Airport. You know, you can you can do a lot of private flights there. you got a couple of small little airports that become kind of like, you know, mini havens. And it's just – Western Mass is just like – there's so much housing. Like not housing, but – there is housing. But also there's so many colleges that are probably not going to have people on campus. And there's a lot of – sort of smaller private schools that you could just take over and it would be a win-win because they're probably struggling, you know, like Bay Path in Chicopee, I think, or wherever Bay, Bay Path is. Just become, you know, six, 600 kids or whatever it is. Uh, Elms, you know, I mean, all these schools just become like training campsites. It's almost like the World Cup where, you know, you have like a training facility in the country where the event is. And it's all in Western Mass. And then very easy to schedule. You just have like you, – you bring in the PVTA system. So that's – they're still working, right? They're, they're transporting people. I mean it's genius. And people will say, oh, why not pick some other random location? I bet that in terms of number of co- – I mean you could say Boston because there's more colleges there. But that's too dense. So the whole thing is – the, like you, you hit the sweet spot in Western Mass where there's number of college and prep school facilities where you're like in this in this perfect part of the Venn diagram where you have number of college and uh, prep school facilities and a fairly n- non-dense population. So... I mean, Springfield, Holyoke are a little trickier in that regard because they're a little more dense. But, you know, you can still kind of bubble off parts of Springfield. If you get, especially if you give some of the more affluent teams or conferences, the Springfield schools, you can really do a good job bubbling them off. So Springfield, Winnick, Stick probably has a gym. Uh, I'm trying to think what else is, is out there. HCC is Holyoke. Like Westfield State, you can put a couple teams there. Um, Amherst College, obviously. 
fuck it, there's probably an old gym at Hampshire. Um, and there's a ton of space there. So, I mean, it's this is so good. I, I really, as I'm saying this, I mean, it's insane. But on some level, the premise of getting, like, all of a sport in one territorially contiguous area, you know, in a fairly rural area where there's a lot of, like, fuck it, in the Berkshires, you've got, like, some of those, like, sleepaway camps probably have, no, that's a little much, that's a little much, okay, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but, like, Williams College, they'll probably not be on campus, they've got dorms, you could put, like, an entire conference there, they've got a nice gym, They've got Mount Greylock High School, which in Williamstown, that probably has another gym. There's probably like a rec gym or two at Williams also. It's probably got like four courts. You can divide up practice time. I don't know how they're doing it in the NBA, but I haven't really been watching yet. But like how many courts they have. But you put like a conference in Williamstown, you know, Berkshire Community College plus the Berkshire Prep Schools, a couple of those. You know, so you have a couple other conferences there. Northampton can do five teams on the Smith College campus. You got like two, three gyms there plus Northampton High and Smith Vocational. Um, these are all facilities that would be fine. Relative, you know, I mean, you put a little money into them, make them a little better in terms of just like TV stuff. But this actually could be done if someone was really thinking outside the box. Like, it's an immense amount of logistics. But there are events planning professionals I feel like who are probably big time out of work. They would love to do something like this. It's a challenge of a lifetime. I mean, you have the infrastructure for the NCAA tournament and NIT and stuff in place already. This could be done. It's like not that crazy. Wow. I may have solved the problem. Okay. Um, but what I was originally, originally going to answer that question was with was my bubble is just going to be, and I've said this on Twitter, but you play every team in your – you forget non-conference. You play every team in your league twice. You do um, – Home, home. So you go to one venue, but there's no fans, so it's not really a home court advantage. And you play Saturday, Sunday, back to back, and you fly in. It means every team would have to, you know, would have six or seven road trips because you play half your games at home, half on the road. And you know, few of them are close enough. You just end up chartering four or five times a year for the season. Not bad. And you go straight to campus. You, you know, I think it's very doable. Or you could go with my real outside the box Western Mass bubble plan. Um, like I actually want that. As funny and ridiculous as that was, that thing should have a little virality in the college basketball world because if people heard it, like there is an intuitive sense to it. I don't think there's anywhere in the country. Maybe you even bring in parts of like the Hartford area, right? So you basically go. As they used to say on WHMP when I was a kid, the uh, 1400, the radio station in Western Mass, from, or maybe it was NPR 88.5, from Brattleboro to Bradley. In that, you know, from Brattleboro, Vermont to Bradley Airport, you could conceivably put 300 plus NCAA teams. Fuck it. Do the Power Five plus like the four or five or six next biggest conferences. Do it with 120 teams. It could work. It really could work. Okay. Um, I'm wondering if I'm making sense. I would love to hear some of you just be like, what on earth are you fucking talking about, dude? Because I could be totally off here. I don't know. Um, all right. What else we got for questions? 
Slovin wants me to touch, Eli Slovin wants me to touch on the situation with on-campus housing and stuff. I got to be honest, this is like one of those weird ones. When there's specific things about UMass, the institution, and undergrads, not only am I, did I not go to UMass, I'm 15, no, I'm 12 years out of college. My thoughts on some of these things, I'm realizing, I'm like, I'm feeling my age a little these days in quarantine, two kids and the whole nine. You just go from, people who are my age will know this, but you basically go from being like 26 to 34, 35 in about an hour. Like I got married 28 and then I don't really, you know, it's like you, you have this very intense few years right after college where you're figuring out the world, get in a relationship if you're lucky, find somebody you love, whatever, get married. And then all of a sudden, like, boom, you wake up six, seven years later. It's weird. Um, so I don't really know. I, I don't know the what I'm trying to say is I don't really know the intricacies of like these things. I haven't given a lot of thought to campus housing in a while. You know, it seems like it'd be a disaster. But at the same time, the question for me is kind of like, you know, at what point do you say you got to take some risks? And I don't know the answer. I really don't. And it's inhumane to say, oh, well, you should be the one to die. You know, and that's what it comes down to. Unfortunately, there's a lot of other realms in this country where we've accepted that. I'm paraphrasing someone from a podcast I listened to. I was making this point, which was really grim and struck me pretty intensely, where they said, you know, basically the implication of people who say, okay, just got to return to normal, is like, and they say, you know, 30,000 people die of gun violence every year, 30,000 people die of uh, car accidents every year, 30,000, and the implication is like, that those things are okay and totally non-preventable, and so this should be too. And that's really a grim commentary about the world we live in. So I don't need to go much down that path, but I, I think we all wrestle with those questions. And w- whether we think about it or not, we kind of are like, ah, like in the back of our minds, like, eh, we can kind of start going back to normal, you know, because, you know, people die in all sorts of ways. But just the acceptance of that, that we've kind of so easily internalized that is, is a dark commentary in its own right, I think. Um, anyway, sorry to go all philosophical on you there. Eric Free. Oh, and then he asked me to to say my favorite John Bugs highlights. Yes, we haven't touched on that. John Bugs announced very strangely timed announcement that he would be leaving the program. My understanding is that Bugs's injury was really bad, and you know, I I don't think he would have played much. But by all accounts, everyone loved the kid, including me. I mean, he was such a great kid. My highlights, unfortunately, because he played four games, are. I think he had a couple steals opening night or at at Fairfield, which were fun. He's good on the press, just good energy, and he was always fun on the bench. So I'll miss the kid. I really will. Um, Eric Friedlander says, "Are you surprised you raised over 2K in Venmo donations?" And then he wanted me to talk about bugs too, which I just did. I'm not. No, I have no doubts in the UMass Twitter people. I was a little like. As, as kind of boastful and cocky as I can be on the show, I mean, on the show and on Twitter, there's a part of me that when it comes down to being like a formal sort of or even semi-formal fundraiser, organizer, I'm just like a little uneasy about it because I, I don't want to be – I don't want to fuck it up. I don't want to lose people's trust. 
And I don't really feel comfortable fully with the idea of being like a, a leader in the fan base or whatever. Like I really do believe that there's 50 people on Twitter who are as fanatical and f- engaged as I am. I just started a podcast and a good screen name and I don't like – and I love doing this. I really do. I, I get a lot of joy out of it. But that's what it's about. It's always been informed by just joy and love. And so that's why I like doing it because I really don't – it's not about – like it's – and don't get me wrong. I can be a total selfish prick in other contexts in my life. You know, I mean we, we all have many selves. But this is like something I do really selflessly. I, I really – like I, I – and I would do it – I'd fucking pay you to do this. You know what I mean? Like I just love it and it's a weird – fanaticism that I'm allowed to indulge and I like am eternally grateful for everyone listening. So, but when it comes down to like, then, oh wait, that's giving me a bit of an audience. That's giving me a bit of a platform in whatever little tiny way it has, you know, I'm thrilled to use it. But then when it comes down to like making the ask and like donating the money and now I'm going to have to think about, oh, where are we going to apportion the money to? We'll have like three grand. Do we give a thousand to football, a thousand to basketball, a thousand to hockey? Like, should I make it democratic? Can people vote? When you go all the general fund, it's like, oh, fuck, like all of a sudden I actually have like responsibility in a domain in which I participate for the in part for the express reason of like not having a lot of responsibility for just talking shit and having fun. You know, like I've got enough responsibility at work and, you know, in my marriage and my kids like this is the domain. So it's funny when it ends up being like, okay, I got to step up and like lead on this one where it's like and also as you probably figured out, like I'm not Mr. Organized. I'm not like Mr. Like. You know, I don't have an Excel sheet where I'm keeping all this stuff. Like I, I'm just like, it's in my Venmo account and I'll figure it out and you can trust me. But like <laughs> some of the logistics of that I had not thought through in advance. I was just like, oh, let's raise a bunch of money. And we did. And I think that's, you lead with your heart on these kind of things. But when it comes down to the actual, uh, you know, like m- mechanics of it, it's like, ooh. But uh, I'm not surprised because there's a lot of amazing people on UMass Twitter who really care about this. And I think we've formed a really great community and people want to, you know, especially right now, if you are still working and you're blessed to be still employed as so many aren't, then you've probably saved a lot of money because COVID, you know, like I'm not paying daycare anymore. That was my biggest expense, um, more than, more than my rent, you know, so like posted up my parents for a few weeks and um, worked out of there and, you know, wasn't paying for a lot of food. So like I've actually saved money. And if you have, I think, you know, this is a good time to use it on things you care about. All right. By the way, Curry Hicks 96 on Venmo, if you still want to donate. Um, what else we got here? Do we have any more? Uh, let's see. I I think that might be it. Um, Is that it? Is that really it? Um, Oh, somebody asked me a question in my DMs the other day. I've got to find it because, like, people are like, oh, I'll forget to ask. Oh, yes. Greg Ledger. I think it's Ledger or is it Legger? I always mess up. L-E-G-E-R. Really good dude. Gave a lot to, to the donation, by the way. DC-based, DC area-based engineer. He says, oh, before I forget, future pod question. A10 fan bases on flavors of hangar wings. So, like, LaSalle would be plain since they have no fans as an example. (laughs) All right. 
this is tough because let me try to find hang on i'm gonna try to go to the hanger menu on my computer because i mean honey barbecue and honey mustard are really like the jams and so to me those are kind of like your your pioneer league programs like your 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 stellar teams with great fan bases and you know every year and i think you have to basically say vcu will probably give them honey mustard because it's yellow and actually yeah that's fitting and honey barbecue for dayton because it's, it's like more like orangish red but you know those are kind of your two marquee flavors to me and, and you know most signature um and then what are the other flavors gosh it's been a while since i've like looked at the menu i just kind of know what i want when i'm in the area by the way, shout out to the owner of, I was down at my in-laws this summer working, you know, and doing stuff out of there for a bit in the North, in Raleigh, Durham area. And they had one of our listeners or, or, uh, my Twitter followers is a former UMass guy who owns a couple franchise, uh, wings overs down there. And he gave me a $50 credit, hooked me up. I got a ton of fucking wings. They were awesome. And so shout out to that guy. That was pure class. If you're ever in Raleigh or Chapel Hill, hit up Wings Over. Um, so let's see. Hanger, Amherst. Let me see. Amherst Mass Menu. Okay. I'm going to go quick here. Meet. Oh, they got a nice menu now. Man, it's like funny to see the hanger like all professional. Okay, flavors. Wimpy. <laughs> I don't remember what wimpy is. I want to say it's like kind of spicy, but I'm just going to take it more literally. And who's the wimpiest school in the league? Davidson, wimpy. Um, Davidson's basically Amherst College of the South. It's a terrific academic school. Wimpy. Um... Let's see. Jet fuel. All right. When I think jet fuel, I think of 9-11 conspiracy theorists who say jet fuel or jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Who's the most conspiratorial fan base in the league? Bonaventure. So they are jet fuel. These are in the Buffalo category, evidently, both wimpy and jet fuel. Red alert is very Dayton, but... I don't think of, you know, I already gave them one. So who else is red? St. Joe's. Um, Cajun, who's kind of spicy and has a unique culture in the league. That could have been, that could be like GW. Because they're just kind of like unique in a weird way. Um... West Texas Mesquite is kind of uh, Duquesne because it's just like, who the fuck goes there and gets West Texas Mesquite? Why is Texas in the league? I mean, why is Duquesne in the league kind of thing? Mango Habanero is sort of like your non-traditional outside-the-box flavor. And... Hmm. Hmm. Non-traditional habanero. It's not Richmond. They're kind of traditional. Who am I missing here? 
I, I got so many schools I can't even think of. Who's URI? I gotta find something I hate. What's the worst flavor that I just that's just disgusting? Hmm. Like teriyaki's good. Cajun blackened. Uh, that sounds kind of good. Mustang Ranch. That sounds horrible. Uh, that's URI. Um, who am I missing? LaSalle, you said plain. Is that even a type, though? Is there a, is there a plain wings? It doesn't look like it. Um, house smoked wings would probably be Fordham, because they always get smoked and lose. <laughs> and kicking BBQ. I don't quite know what that really means. Sweet onion BBQ doesn't sound that good, and so we'll give that to, like... I don't know, citrus chipotle, that, I, I got nothing else, this is all I got, I hope that was halfway decent, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I gotta give this more thought, alright, that's my show for the night, you guys are great, as the former host of this program, Andrew Kalegi, aka A. Kalegi for long time, A. Kalegi for long time listeners, would say, love you, we out. 